there's no way I'm going to spend an hour or two hours like with this dough, right? So I'm just going to get the <laughs> dough hook in on, that, on that KitchenAid mixer and let it rip. With yeast doughs, you're, you're constantly sort of, um, it's kind of a, a little bit of a violent, you're punching it down. Yeah, right. <laughs> and you're throwing it up. Encouraging it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With Thanksgiving and winter holidays around the corner, there's no better time to spend than with baker and food artist, Sarah Owens. Sarah is a California-based cookbook author, baker, gardener, and instructor, and she just might have the ingredients to help us learn to come to our senses with sourdough baking. Like with any kind of skill, once you are done being so preoccupied with the the performance Mm -hmm. of what you're doing, you can let go of that preoccupation and really start to immerse yourself in the experience of it happening. Sarah won a James Beard Award for her first book, Sourdough, and released her second cookbook titled Toast and Jam. Her third, Heirloom, Time-Honored Techniques, Nourishing Traditions and Modern Recipes, came out just last year. Today we'll talk about our mothers, and Sarah helps me troubleshoot my bad habits making sourdough bread. And we get some delicious recipes that will complement your turkey's fixings this Thanksgiving. But Sarah tells me it's about how we bake, not what we bake. I always say with sourdough, you never watch the clock. You always watch the dough or you always watch the starter. Sarah began her baking career after going gluten-free to try to resolve debilitating health issues. She credits her study and practice of food fermentation with better digestive health. But Sarah cautions about turning a health kick into a food obsession when too much of a good thing isn't a good thing and how what she calls capitalistic pseudoscience in food marketing can mislead us. The gluten-free movement really took advantage of people not understanding where their food came from or how it impacted the body. Oh, but Sarah, can't we just talk about pineapple upside-down cakes and apple galettes? have been thinking about apple fritters. Welcome to The Soul of Life. I'm Keith Miller. This is episode 14, Sourdough for Your Soul. I dreamt all night last night about apple fritters. (laughs) That's great. The the dreams of a baker. I love it. (laughs) I'm Keith Miller, and my podcast, The Soul of Life, is here to help you remember who you really are. I'll bring together people who have gotten off their treadmills. I'll have conversations with athletes, musicians, doctors, scientists, healers, and entrepreneurs to discuss the fascinating edges of our knowledge in neurobiology, psychology, and physics. This is the soul of life. Sarah Owens is a California-based cookbook author, baker, gardener, and instructor. She was awarded a James Beard for her first book, Sourdough, and has written other books on baking. And I'm excited to speak with her about a range of topics, including health, um, the role of food in our spiritual well-being and our, our holistic selves. And really excited to have Sarah Owens here. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me, Keith. You're, you're very welcome. So my first question is, how is your mother? <laughs> oh, which one do you want to talk about first? <laughs> no, right. We're going to cover the whole gamut today, Sarah. We're yeah. going to cover the whole thing. I got to tell you that I, um, cause since I knew I was interviewing you today, I, uh, I, opened my fridge, and I reached into the very, very far back corner 
Uh-huh. And I pulled out my mother, my sourdough starter. Okay. And um, I opened it. I'm sure you've heard many stories like this. Mm-hmm. And it's been in there a few months. I got to say, I went through a kick making sourdough for uh, many months and you know, some pretty yeah. mediocre loaves came out. We'll talk about you know best practices sure. today, hopefully. But so I opened the sourdough starter and I'm looking at it. And I've, I've, I've restarted many bad batches of, of starter before. But I'm looking at this and I'm, I'm seeing chunks in there. Chunks. And oh, I, dear. Yeah. And I said, that, these, these chunks look like, wait a minute, this is clam chowder. So this, oh, was, this was not my starter. Oh but it looked, had the consistency. It's a hor- horror story. It's a terrible thing. Yeah. Pulled it out. Yeah. Started, you know. Had, got my starter kicked up again. It's it's bubbling as we speak. So okay, all right, yeah. great. Well, yeah. I'm glad you had a reason to revive it. Yeah, and, yeah, me too. Uh, yeah, especially as it starts to get a little bit chilly outside. It's perfect weather for baking. It really is. Yeah. Tell me, tell me how you got started. Sure, I um, was living in Brooklyn at the time, Brooklyn, New York. And I was working at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden as a curator of the roses, of the rose collection there. And I had been having some issues with my digestive system that now in hindsight, you know, I I recognize were triggered by a lot of different things, diet, but also stress and lifestyle And it took me quite a long time to really put everything together. Um, I was going to different types of specialists and doctors and getting lots of tests run uh, and ultimately realized that I really needed to change my lifestyle. And part of that was, you know, changing the way that I prepared my food and discovered fermentation in general as an ally for, um, restoring my sort of probiotic system, but also learning how to pre-digest uh, prebiotics, uh, specifically different types of grains. Right. So it was the, the health scare that you had that really made you look more mindfully kind of at what was going on, what you were putting into your body and how your body was working. And it sounds like yeah. you, you, you started um, making adjustments and, and obviously you're back on track. Yeah. I mean, I, I still need to be diligent about, um, you know, what I consume. And part of that is as making other adjustments as well, like eating with the seasons, um, right. really cutting out a lot of processed foods right. um, and listening to my body. And, you know, part of the journey was really recognizing that I have a personality type that has a tendency to push myself Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the crisis really came when I just wasn't able to function properly. Um, I had certainly been having, you know, symptoms before that, but it, it really took, you know, kind of a, um, a work and, and personal uh, crisis to really, you know, get to the point where I was ready to say, okay, what, what's really happening? Right. And it, and it takes some time to really slow down and listen, you know, to yourself and listen to your body. And, um, and it's been a a journey that will continue, I think for the rest of my life. Yeah. Something I know very well is, uh, as, as similar in my case, um, slowing down Mm -hmm. and needing, needing to realize 
hey, there's a lot going on, stress, you know, being a driven kind of hardworking person as an entrepreneur and trying to make ends meet and that sort of thing. Right. Um, We're going to talk today about uh, some of your favorite recipes, some things because Thanksgiving Mm -hmm. and the holidays are coming up. But, Mm -hmm. you know, speaking of health, I mean, the the reason I reached out to you was because I had this book, um, Sourdough, sitting in my kitchen for a while. And that's what got me on a kick. Um, I got started making sourdough and I thought that it was, you know, time to step up to the plate and see if I could do it. And I realized pretty quickly why (laughs) most people don't really do it. It's because it's so many steps. And uh, so um, tell me a little bit about like why sourdough is such an important thing. You mentioned digestibility. Um, Why, why is it worth all the fuss to go through the, all the steps? Well, that's a great question. And it could be, um, I could answer that question for the rest of this interview. (laughs) (laughs) A long story. (laughs) Uh, but you know, there, there are lots of different benefits. And I think one of the most, two of the most obvious are, um, the flavor. And, you know, I really do believe that food that is nutritious has improved flavor over food that has been sort of stripped of its natural, um, ability to nourish us. Um, and so people, a lot of times they just love the flavor of sourdough and it's very difficult to, um, to find that in a product that you buy at the store that's been standardized. That standardization is also what is so challenging for us mm-hmm. and is something that we have to really take into consideration when we embark on the journey of learning how to use sourdough. But, you know, one of the other benefits is um, in the digestibility of different types of grains. And that can be anything from wheat um, to other sort of pseudo cereals like buckwheat and other more non-traditional grains as well. Um, So, you know, sourdough is definitely an ally for us in terms of, uh, of getting better nutrition into our bodies it allows, um, you know, not just gluten to be pre-digested, but <clears throat> it also pre-digests the, um, the bran, you know, the fiber, fiber that can be difficult for some people. And also something called phytates, which um, don't really get a lot of attention, but, um, you know, it can be a little bit troubling for people with a tendency to have digestion issues, but also uh, absorption issues, which was another one of my issues of, you know, being very um, anemic uh, and just not having the digestive system to absorb what I needed to. Yeah. Yeah. This was something I um, spent a great deal of researching as far as what's called pernicious anemia. And I'm not Mm -hmm. sure if that's what you're referring to, but it was something Mm -hmm. that I was convinced that I had and was getting B12 injections and then had the, the, uh, the, um, endoscopy, you know, the, the scope that goes down. And so they're looking for in that, mm-hmm. in that procedure, they're looking for malabsorption issues. And you, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned that you had um, tried going gluten-free. That was something a lot of people advised, like, mm-hmm. hey, what's the harm? Just go gluten-free. I mean, which is a big deal actually to try to get gluten out of your diet. And it takes months yeah. actually for them to say, you know, and give it a few months before you can even tell. Yeah. Um, so you decided after becoming, um, going gluten-free, you decided actually, no, that wasn't the, the answer. Is that right? You went back to uh, eating uh, grains and, and gluten, but with a twist, is that right? Yeah. So it was, um, it was kind of a, a, a meandering <laughs> path around back to eating gluten. Um, first, I had started 
fermenting some vegetables and, and really basic, um, just like sauerkraut and fermented carrots and things that I could put under a brine. Um, I began uh, working with Wild Fermentation, which is a Sandor Katz um, book. And that, you know, the idea with that was really to just introduce, reintroduce probiotics back into my system. I had mm-hmm. been um, put on antibiotics as a way to um, decrease the bad bacteria that had been uh, overtaking my gut, and it actually created a much worse uh, problem for me. Um, right. And so, the fermentation of the vegetables, you know, reintroduced the um, probiotics. But then I was in a bookstore one day, and I p- picked up a little um, sort of paperback uh, manual from the seventies. The first chapter was how to take your sourdough starter camping. Wow. <laughs> and um, yeah, the title of it was adventures in sourdough. <laughs> that's great. And uh, I was like, wow, this looks like the book for me, but I had never considered that sourdough was just another form of fermentation and that it could, you know, possibly help me on this journey. And mm. when I realized the power that it had to sort of pre-digest gluten, if done properly and slowly and over time, then it might, you know, um, remedy the issue that I was having. And I had already gone through tests to make sure that I was not celiac and that I, I did not have a true gluten allergy. And those two things are very different than a gluten intolerance and are very important to determine um, when you're embarking on a journey um, of using sourdough for dig- digestion. Um, but you know, sourdough at that point, when I had that moment of like, oh, this, this could actually be something for me, um, became very powerful in my life. Um, not just for the digestive reasons, but also the process, Mm -hmm. the actual practice of Mm -hmm. maintaining a culture. Right. That's something we'll, we'll dig into in a little bit. Um, and I want to just caveat, like everyone listening, who's interested in, um, digestive health should check with their doctor, obviously get, get good sound medical advice. We're, we're not medical experts here, but let's dive into to the actual process a little bit. Um, sure. For people out there who are interested in trying, um, how do you feel about me referring to your, your book, Sourdough, as sort of an intermediate um, it, to advanced kind of sourdough? Like, I'm not sure, is it, is it for the beginner? Because I, uh, and, and I was really thrilled to, to see that you had a, a video that um, was new to me, but when I watched, I said, "This is perfect. This is what I needed at the time because it's just watching <laughs> yeah. the steps." So, um, right. would you recommend this to somebody just starting sourdough? Tell me a little bit about how the book has been. Yeah, well, it really depends on what your goals are and also your learning style. Not everyone learns in the same way. Um, different people respond very differently to different types of language. And uh, with sourdough, with something that is variable, um, you know, there's no one right way to make a loaf of sourdough bread. And so, you know, when people ask me, you know, obviously I've written books, you know, I would love for people to read them and use them. But when people ask me, you know, about um, the content of my books, I say, you know, you really have to find something that you respond to and that makes sense to you. 
And some people learn through uh, reading and through more of an intuitive angle. And some people really appreciate step one, step two, step three, right. done. Right. And that's um, what I needed. I kind of needed that sort of like, here's what is going to go wrong and here's what you need to do and not do. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I wrote Sourdough in 2013. So I wrote it about seven years ago and it was published in 2015. And, you know, knowing now what I do know and having had the experience now of teaching thousands of different Mm. people in person and then millions of different people online, um, I perhaps would have written, you know, my first book a little bit differently. That said, you know, I, I like to set people up with the proper expectations and, Um, Something like sourdough, where you have lots of different variables from temperature to humidity to ingredients, um, it's important to realize that there is not just a a very dogmatic set of of instructions that in order to be successful, you have to master the skill. But to become a better baker, you really have to start honing your intuition. Mm. And that involves waking up the senses and um, developing observational skills. And at that point, you know, that's when we, we start to become better bakers and to really make the process our own and make it sort of fit into our lives rather than our lives sort of having to be morphed around this particular set of instructions or, or right. processes. right. And, and that's what I feel like this is so important to talk about because so many people that I work with in mental health and, and, and on the treatment side of things mm-hmm. um, are struggling to find meaningful things that, um, that take time and that are not just another thing to worry about. Um, uh-huh. You know, we can give them cognitive behavioral sort of strategies and tools, but then even that becomes a burden and something to worry about. And it almost sounds like you're mm-hmm. saying, when you can you can approach baking and and um and even harvesting and growing foods and sourcing your foods from a from a more flexible state and from a place of receptivity it sounds like yeah yeah I, you know i think it's one of the things that we've learned this year is we really can't control everything even right. when we think we're in control right it's it's uh really kind of an illusion and that that even saying that can make people feel very uncomfortable and like you've pulled the rug out from underneath them. But, um, you know, I think when we embark on something, a journey of learning a new skill, whatever that might be, um, you know, it's all about expectations and it's all about um, opening yourself up to um, the experience of doing it rather than really focusing on the end result. And right. that's when we, we embark on a journey of mindfulness, of, you know, paying attention to what something smells like. What does it smell like now? What does it smell like in an hour? Mm-hmm. What does it feel like right now? What does it feel like in four hours? Um, and, you know, that is a, a commitment of sorts of, of le- letting go. And like you said, just being receptive to what is actually happening in the moment. Right, right. And you mentioned learning styles, and of course, we are going to talk about a little bit sort of mothers in a minute. But you know, mother, you know <laughs> starters are referred to as mothers, and you know, we have I think 
an attachment to the figure that is teaching us, the person, whether that's mm. you in your writing uh, or someone we're watching on YouTube. So we, you know, it's just something about our brains with the mirror neurons that we have. We, we kind of need to see. And when we see something, we can model it and then we can say, oh, I can do that. That's me. What you're doing is what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Let's get into the the how to a little bit. Having said all of this about which which about how important the process is, and we'll come mm-hmm. back to that a little bit. But let's talk about like some of the basics. Um, what, what's a novice to expect? Can you go through kind of a basic starting sourdough? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, you know, expectations are really you know just your priorities, and everyone has different priorities in life. Um, you know, some people embark on the journey and they really want to make that big crusty bull of, of, of sourdough that looks like everyone else's. <laughs> Yours are, and they're beautiful, but by the way, the ones that you're doing and the scoring that you do, they're just, the, the images are just you. beautiful. We'll have them on the, on the website. Yeah. It's just sure, gorgeous. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so that's a very, you know, common place for people to start. And um, there's certainly nothing wrong with that at all. Um, you know, other people start from a very different uh, end of the journey. They want to really focus on whole grains and using local ingredients and supporting their local grain economy, um, which is where, you know, my personal interest has, has developed over the last couple of years. Um, but it's important to identify uh, where you're headed when you begin. If you don't know where you're headed, um, it's hard. It's hard to get there. <laughs> right. Well, let's just say I'll run, to run with this a little bit. Like I'm going to just get my flour from the Safeway or from the giant supermarket, like right. And uh-huh. you know, so let's talk about that. Am I am I using bread flour? I mean, without giving a course on like all the different kinds of you know sure. gluten involved, but like you know, what's different about sourdough? How, how are we? What are we doing? What are we grabbing off the shelf? And then what can right. we expect? When can we expect a loaf of bread? Right. So, um, so I should just say that all of my books are written using stone ground flour. Mm-hmm. Um, so not flour that you grab off the shelf. Right. Um, so there, there does have to be, you know, a little bit of adjustment and it doesn't mean that the flour off the shelf won't work. Right. Um, right. but we, we do need to understand that there are lots of different types of ingredients. Um, and some of them have been standardized like, uh, the flour you get, at the grocery store and, right. and a lot of them have not been particularly if you are buying regional, um, you know, flowers mm-hmm. that have been grown in your particular climate and ground in a different way than the industrial sort of processing. So we do need to identify, you know, what the differences are and that there may have to be adjustments. Sure. But really, you know, for a lot of people, it's um, just kind of wrapping your head around um, what what is this thing called sourdough? And, um, you know, why is it different than a packet of yeast that you buy at the store? Exactly, yeah. And does it take all this time that it seems like it it is supposed to take? You know, am I going to have to be like watching this thing like a child or a pet? Um, so that's usually kind of where I begin, um, the conversation and, you know, creating a, a starter, creating a culture is really, really just combining flour and water together. And when you understand the magic that happens from just combining those two seemingly very inert ingredients, um, you know, that's, that's an incredible, uh, very powerful thing that can happen in your kitchen with very minimal investment. 
it's really amazing, right? People, I think, think that there's supposed to be like eggs and milk. People who have really are not spending a lot of time in their kitchen are like, what's in this? Well, flour yeah. and water. And so the bacteria right. comes from the air that's uh, in our kitchen. It comes from our hands or our utensils, right? Is that correct? So the bacteria in each batch of starter um, and each batch of flour has its own bacteria, right? So, so can you speak about that a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, a starter is a symbiotic relationship between bacteria and yeast. So there are sometimes dozens and dozens of different um, species and subspecies of microbes that are all sort of living together in this particular culture. And that culture can be similar or different to other people's cultures. But um, it is a reflection of your hands it's a reflection of the ingredients you're using. And um, those are all sort of influenced by your conditions around you, including temperature, humidity, humidity, and other things. Um, but really primarily what we are trying to culture is the microbial community that's on the flower itself. Mm. And so, um, you know, in Heirloom, in my third book, I really try to encourage people to use flour that's alive, um, that is very different than industrially processed flour, which um, has very purposefully been um, processed in a way to remove the, the life from the flour. Is that the same as if we, if we get unbleached flour, Sarah? Or, or when you speak about stone ground flour, can you say what the difference is? How does that come into play? Sure. It's, um, it's kind of a long um, consideration, but basically the, the mechanical process of stone grinding versus roller milling. Mm-hmm. So stone grinding is usually um, two round stones that sort of sit on top of each other the grain passes through and all of the elements of the original grain come out in the flour. So you have the bran, the outer coating, which is the fiber. You have the endosperm, which is the majority of the grain. Um, and that's kind of the white part that we see in flour. And then you have something called the germ, which is where a, a great deal of the nutrition, a lot of the micronutrients and also the oils and the flavor lie within the, um, the grain. Now that germ, once it is um, ground and comes into contact with air or you know, oxidized, it immediately begins its process of degradation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can kind of think about it like you would uh, nuts. You know, Once nuts are sort of stored at room temperature, and um, their oils, you know, uh, become oxidized, they, they begin to go rancid. It's the same with flour. And so industrialization, roller milling, uh, was created to, uh, to create a, a product that could sit on the shelf for up to a year or more wow. without um, compromising the integrity so of really- trying to take the bacteria out that could make it not shelf-stable? Shelf well, it, it takes out the germ. And um, studies have shown that the majority of the microbes that are naturally present uh, on, a, on a grain of anything are hanging out around the food source, which is, um, you know, the germ. And so when you compromise the germ through roller milling, which is basically removing the germ, 
then you're removing a, a huge portion of the microbial load, but also the natural nutrition of the grain. That's why most flour that you buy at the store, if you look at the ingredients, even if it's unbleached, it's been enriched. Um, we went through a period of time after roller milling was developed in the late 1800s where um, there were very serious nutritional um, diseases that were developing. And uh, we realized collectively that this was because of the, the stripping of nutrition from flour. Mm. And so um, government mandates were put in place, uh, place that you actually had to, if you were roller milling flour, you actually had to um, put those nutrients back in. Now, all of those nutrients are synthetically manufactured right. that are put back into it seems like we're doing it all flour. backwards, right? Well, you know, it just takes a very different infrastructure in yeah. order to support stone ground flour. And we'll put and, some links up for sure for people on the website for places where we yeah. can source this that you might recommend. Yeah, and there's a on my website, ritualfinefoods.com, there's a, a tab for resources and it lists every stone ground uh, flour mill uh, that I know of cool. in the United States. Cool. And um, I've started to list, um, it's not comprehensive yet, I've started to list uh, mills in other countries. Nice. As That's well. the fir- one of the first things I'll do after, after we're done recording this is, is get some stone ground. Uh, sustainably harvested flour. Um, so yeah. s- say more about the next step. So you, you've got the okay. flour, you've got the, the, the source <laughs> flour. And, uh, and, and what do people do with mixing flour? Talk about the hydration and, and all sure, that. Sure. So the whole point of going into the, the mechanical processing of flour is that stone ground flour is going to be much easier to create an active, healthy lively starter that's going to um, be more successful for you in your kitchen. Right. Um, so that's, that's the whole point of that conversation, um, linking it to sourdough. Of course, there's other points as well, like nutrition and flavor, but sure. um, stone ground flour is going to uh, create a very <clears throat> active starter in a very short amount of time mm-hmm. so uh, without cup, cup, a lot of cup. effort couple days i mean are we, is, is that about the ballpark i mean like I, i'm doing probably two feedings to get to revive my old starter which yeah at, at least from my knowledge was not um inedible because it had a it had the, <laughs> the alcohol the hooch on top which right. was basically saying that this thing was starving uh itself and then <laughs> you know it's also very black which my understanding is that that's mm-hmm. fine you just don't want to see colors is that correct if you see funny lovers or like uh colors then that's a bad sign yeah. So when you're first starting out, it does, it, it can take a couple of days, two to three days um, to really start seeing fermentation activity. And when I say that, I mean like um, you're seeing bubbles uh, popping the surface. Um, you may see if you're keeping it in a clear jar, you may see um, fermentation bubbles on the side of the jar mm-hmm. and you will most likely smell uh, fermentation activity as well. Right. Now, before, you know, the starter really gains its um, equilibrium between the different microbes, it may smell a little funky. You're listening to the Soul of Life podcast with me, Keith Miller. Every week I bring you a new episode that hopefully inspires you to reflect more on who you are and who you want to be in this rapidly changing world. 
If this time we share together moves you somehow closer to who you are or lights up parts of you that have been unplugged, I want to hear from you. And please share the love. Take a moment to find the Soul of Life podcast in the social media where you hang out on iTunes, Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, and let me know who you are. A little cheesy or a little used. To me, it smells like bread. I mean, if you're used to sourdough (laughs) bread, you're like, yeah, that's that's starting to get there. Yeah. So you know, once the starter um, finds its kind of own rhythm. Um, and you're able to double it in size within, you know, eight to 12 hours, depending on your room temperature, um, then you're pretty much ready to go with creating bread. Now, the maintenance schedule um, can be a little different depending on how you maintain your starter. But ideally, you don't put it in the fridge, right? You keep it on the counter, you're feeding it daily or... or, I... Encourage people to keep it in the fridge. It's less maintenance. It's less work. Um, It doesn't mean that you can't produce. I keep my starter in the fridge. I feed it. Let me ask you about that. Couple times a week. So a couple times a week. If you want to make a batch and you've got your starter in the fridge, it's 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 Uh dormant. So it, it it does it need to eat before you take that sample out for your bread? Yeah. Yeah. So. You have to remember that when your starter is in the fridge, it is um, sort of inactive, but it's still um, it's still metabolizing the food that's in the starter. There's also um, within the starter, you know, there's different types of bacteria and yeast, and all of those thrive at different temperatures. In the refrigerator, um, you're going to start to get a lot of um, acetic acid buildup. Um, you'll start to get the hooch. <laughs> and sometimes when that happens, you know, it, it really drops or it really lowers the pH. It creates a very acidic environment. And for the most part, the yeast that we're cultivating can tolerate that, but they their activity may slow down quite a bit if the pH is a little bit too low or if it's been in the refrigerator for a little too long. Right. So do you, do you ever just dump it out, Sarah? Is it is it better to just start from scratch? If you if like I've had the I've had the the starter in the fridge for probably a couple of years and I've used it off and on. Mm. Is there value to keeping that heritage, you know, going? Uh, you know, I think culturally and socially there is something about you know when somebody hands me a hundred year old starter, right? Oh I mean, that's goodness. just you know, it's just an incredible thing that a that a society a culture of people would choose to nurture something for that long. There's something very, very um, beautiful about that. That said, that starter is not going to make a better loaf of bread than the starter that you've had for two weeks. Right. So maybe um, on the poetic scale, it's very high. And, and on the on the mindful absolutely. scale, like the, or I yeah. should say timeful. I had a guest, Marsha Bionarud, who is a geologist, and she was talking about timefulness and that idea of yeah. investing in these long projects. Right. Exactly. exactly. So cool. Yeah. I mean, we always have to, um, when we're talking about anything, whether it's, you know, uh, nutrition or sourdough cultures, you know, we always have to keep in mind um, that there is a science behind whatever we're doing. And and with a sourdough culture, every time we feed it, we are reviving and multiplying a population of microbes. Um, a lot of these microbes, they will double in size and in population very, very quickly. 
And so what it are we looking also for? die very, very quickly. <laughs> right, you're right. Yeah, that, that, it can go right into the tank. Um, yeah. wh- what are you looking for in the active starter? When is it ready to make bread? You take it out of the fridge, you, you mm-hmm. give it a feeding, which by the way, for people new to this, you can, you can explain this better than I can, but it's, it's 100% hydration. Can you explain that? Sure. So um, you can feed your starter in lots of different ways and there's no wrong or right way as long as you are feeding the amount of starter, the equal amount of flour. You can ad- adjust the hydration or the amount of water that you use, but you really do want to make sure that if you have 50 grams of starter in your jar, that you're feeding it at least 50 grams of flour. Right. Okay, so you, For, the kitchen scale is essential. People need to know that. You've got to get a scale that measures grams, ideally. It really <laughs> This is not for somebody who's just going to eye it. And that's really true. Like you really have to get this hydration correct. And so um, it, you, you, first of all, you're measuring, well, how, do, how much does this yeast weigh or this starter weigh? And then you're mm-hmm. then putting in, you're, dub, you're matching it. Uh, if, if the starter weighs 50 grams, you add 50 grams flour and then 50 grams water. Is that right? Yeah, if you want to keep it 100% hydration. So that just means you have equal parts flour and water in your starter. Got it. You can keep an 80% hydration starter, which means it's going to be thicker, more Mm -hmm. pasty. You can keep a 110% hydration starter. Not perfect. Um, Well, it's really, again, it's just, you know, you really need to make sure you're not starving the starter by underfeeding it. Got it. Flour. Yep. So, so then once it's you've got it going, you've got it fed, it's bubbling, overfilling the uh-huh. jar maybe, right? It's doubled in mm-hmm. size. And how long does that, should it be doubling in size at room temp? Yeah. So it depends on your, um, the temperature of your kitchen mm-hmm. or wherever you're keeping your starter. Uh, for most people at this time of the year, when it starts getting a little bit chilly, right. um, that can be upwards of 12 hours. Wow. For other people where it's, you know... People uh, write to me in the tropics all the time and they say, you know, my starter's doubling in size in like five hours. It's it's Is that okay? Degrees <laughs> yeah. yeah. So again, it's like, you, you, I always say with sourdough, you never watch the clock. You always watch the dough or right. you always watch the starter. Right. Um, and so if your starter is doubling in size in five hours, that's the peak time to use it. If it's doubling in size in eight or 12 hours, that's the peak time to use it or right. harvest it. Right. Um, so if you're intending to make bread, you know, you want to pull it out of the fridge, give it a feeding before you make leaven, which goes into your bread. Right. Your starter has to work really hard to leaven a whole loaf. Yeah. Yeah, but there's most, lots of other recipes you can use it for as well. Yeah, and your book is full of many different kinds of recipes, the sourdough book at least. And, and I, I mm-hmm. want to just make sure people are aware of that. This is not just about sourdough. There's so many different things you can do. Mm-hmm. And it's just inspiring. Um, so so w- walk us through now. And one of the things that I, I'm inspired by watching you on the video, and we'll put a link to that video as well, a couple okay. of videos that you have. But one of the things that inspired me was, um, besides getting the stone ground grain, is... Um, getting rid of disabusing myself of the dough hook. Okay, <laughs> right? Like I just I make my yeast bread and it's the uh-huh. dough hooks in there, and it just you know, I usually like to do a, like a double batch, and so I'll freeze okay. a few and have. So I'm yeah. just like I'm. There's no way I'm going to spend an hour 
or two hours like with this dough, right? So I'm just going to get the <laughs> dough hook, hook in, on, that, on that KitchenAid mixer and let it rip. And I think uh-huh. I've paid a price probably. I know I've paid a price in my in texture. And with sourdough, right? It, it's a non-starter, right? No pun intended here, but like, <laughs> like would you, use your hands with sourdough, right? Can you speak to that? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, using, using your tactile sense um, of feeling uh, does a couple of different things for us, particularly when we are using um, ingredients that have not been standardized. It allows us to pay a little bit more attention to how those ingredients are responding to things like uh, water, time, and temperature. Throughout the dough making process, the dough changes. Um, When you first mix it, it feels incredibly different than, uh, or it should feel incredibly different in the beginning than when it's ready to shape. And, um, you know, by using our hands, we can really judge the differences um, in, in that transformation. And and I'll be honest with you, most of my batches are, they're going in the oven and they look like, you know, they're basically, I skipped the folding process, oh. the, the stretching folding. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. So, yeah. And you, <laughs> you know, you realize who you're dealing with here, Sarah. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of times when people um, tell me that they're having a hard time with their loaves, maintaining their shape, um, particularly after they come out of the fridge, um, you know, that's just one of a couple of different things, either, the gluten hasn't been developed enough for it to capture the, the fermentation gases or the gluten has been digested too much. Too much. You've waited too long. And it's yep. overproofed and yep. it started to, to break down so much that right. it's losing its gases. Right. Or your flour is overhydrated. Right. And that's the thing that we have to understand is that a recipe for sourdough may have to be adjusted depending on what ingredients you use. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Even standardized ingredients that are bought at the store, if you're living in the desert of Arizona or Southern California, it's still going to perform very differently than if you're using that same brand or that same flour and you're living in Puerto Rico, or if you're living in New York or in Maine. So give it, you're saying patience is a virtue here, feedback from your dough. But, um, you know, as far as the steps, that's important, right? It's got to be folded. Mm -hmm. I love the way it was very, I mean, it was, it was, I got to say, it's relaxing just to watch you work with the dough, right? To, to, Mm -hmm. to see the way you handle it and, and that it's, um, um, that you make sure that you don't deflate it. That's one of the things, Mm -hmm. one of the mistakes, I think, um, for me as a novice going from, um, you know, yeast bread to, you know, basically they tell you deflate it and roll it out and then let it rise again. Right. That second proofing and no way. Right. That's a no, no. So you're like keeping the, the moisture and air in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, with yeast doughs, you're, you're constantly sort of, um, it's kind of a, a a little bit of a violent, you're punching it down (laughs) and you're throwing it up, encouraging it. Um, with sourdough, you're, you know, you're always trying to nurture it to, um, to grow and expand. Um, and it's, it's, it is a very different process and it's, it's very difficult to even compare the two, um, because they, they are just so different, but, 
you know, I always tell people with learning how to use something like sourdough, um, it may sound like a huge investment of time, two to three days to make a loaf of bread. Um, but, you know, your hands-on time is, is actually quite limited to moments of five to 10 minutes. It, it's just, it's, you're really developing patience as a skill as much as you are just learning how to handle the dough. Um, But really, you know, like with any kind of skill, once you are done being so preoccupied with the the performance Mm -hmm. of what you're doing, you can let go of that preoccupation and really start to immerse yourself in the experience of it happening. And, um, And once that develops, then you can become a little bit more intuitive. You kind of know what to expect. You know the process. I always compare it to, um, you know, when I uh, I learned how to scuba dive mm. a few uh, years ago. And it's one of the only um, hobbies I have that I haven't ter- turned into a profession. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the reasons I, I wanted to learn was because I wanted to overcome my fear of, of water. Mm. And... Um, and so for the first, you know, uh, month or so of trying to do it, uh, it was really just about kind of letting go of my, my fear of X, Y, Z, you know, fill in the blank. Um, and once I really understood how to use my equipment, how to use my mask, how to, you know, do all of the things that I had to do, I could let go of all that preoccupation I had with, you know, what was holding me back from the experience. And I started to look around and I started to see the coral and the fish and, mm-hmm. the, you know, all of the beauty of the experience and was able to relax into that and, and become a part of it. Whereas, you know, I was always sort of thinking of myself as I'm here and the water's there and the, the you know, danger is here. And, you know, right. and that just all faded away, you know, and it became this really um, powerful experience. Um, And it's the same with, you know, it's the same with sourdough. It's the same with learning how to um, throw a pot. It's the same with, um, you know, growing your own tomatoes. You kind of have to learn the the framework of what it is you're doing, mixing flour and water together, waiting, you know, shaping it in a particular way. Well, I should tell people, (laughs) right? Like in in your, by the way, you're the first Rosarian or former Rosarian I've had on the podcast. It's amazing. (laughs) Someone who's like literally as a horticulturalist, you you worked and you cared for roses. Anybody who works with flowers knows how finicky, right? Those um, plants can be. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, at the same time, you're developing, I think the monastic traditions Going back in ancient times, the contemplative traditions, the spiritual traditions were all about sort of bringing a, a, a centeredness to the work and becoming mm. one with the work and becoming one with um, um, the outside. It's we go out to go in and we go in to go out. And that's mm. it's almost like the same thing we're talking about with food and with yeast and with sourdough. Um, I do want to ask you about your your real mother because I get my baking sort of <laughs> twitch from from my mother certainly and it's it's been something that I think I can track uh based a little bit on my moods you know if I'm anxious about something mm. you know it's nothing like um just following a recipe start to finish even I, and I and I think this is true you know uh, my brother um 
took apart his 1966 Ford uh, pickup truck <laughs> and reassembled it. He's an engineer, but that, wow. that's a big project, right? Like restored Weird. it, huge project. <laughs> but like, I think these these uh, projects, especially long ones, or even medium term ones, there's something to see. You can see the results. It was so many things that feel out of control in life. Uh, if you're mm-hmm. a parent, if you're if you love somebody, things are not in our control, right? And so baking a loaf of bread is one of these things that can give us that sense of centeredness and without realizing, but my mom, I know for sure that's something that's kind of a center piece of my mom's uh, personality and, and, you know, kind of futzing around the kitchen and doing her thing. And that's something mm-hmm. that I've picked up and that's, you know, I've some sort of expanded. What about your mom? And, or you can speak about <laughs> your parents, I guess, but is there any relation to this? Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up, you know, in a, a huge family of uh, mostly women that were, uh, you know, fetching around in the kitchen. And um, so, it, you know, there were always beautiful smells coming from the kitchen um, and, you know, different sort of characters. My, my mother really didn't like me being in the kitchen. She would rather me be out from underneath her feet. Um, and she's a little bit, to be honest with you, very. she's actually very territorial. Kind of aggressive in the kitchen. <laughs> I have to admit, Even I'm now. the same. Same. Like, I'm like, get out of my way. Like, I'm just going to, you know, <laughs> I'm not at my best. Yeah. Um, but you know, my, there were other, uh, women in my family, um, both of my grandmothers really invited me, you know, into, into their space. And, um, you know, I remember my granny Owens, uh, kept a jar of starter (laughs) that had a horrible smell. And I will say even now, like it was a really (laughs) terrible smell and I remember it. Um, it was very acrid, very sharp, um, but, you know, being in the kitchen, um, in, in my family at least, was, um, you know, it was a, sen- a very sensory experience, uh, no matter whose kitchen it was. Um, and it, it brought the outdoors in. I grew up in a very rural um, area where we grew a lot of our, our food. And um, it was the connection. I, I spent most of my childhood outside. Um, you know, I was told to go run, uh, go do whatever I wanted to. When I heard the the car horn or the bell, come come back home. It's time to eat or it's time to do whatever. Um, and so, you know, being in the kitchen was a bridge between you know those two worlds. And um, for you know my mother and my grandmothers, it was a way to nurture the family. And um, and they were all very good cooks, very simple, very rustic, very country cooks. But um, sounds like it's in your bones, and it's just it was just a natural outflow of 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 the women in your family, especially. Absolutely, and yeah. you know, I think the um, the critical thing I sort of realized in having moved to New York City and having the type of personality that I do, where I'm just, I'm a very driven person um, in whatever it is that I'm doing. I'm very immersed in that. Um, I became a little bit disconnected from, you know, I was working outside every day, um, but I became a little bit disconnected between, um, you know, how my food was, was nurturing me, where it was sort of coming from, um, how it was being even manufactured, what that meant. Um, and that's sort of something that, um, you know, has become very common in our everyday kind of, um, 
lifestyle is this sort of um, capitalistic pseudoscience of, you know, different kind of uh, food movements, you know, the, and the, the gluten-free movement really took advantage of people not understanding where their food came from or how it impacted the body. And certainly there's nothing wrong with, you know, not eating gluten, but it's very important to understand, you know, where something is coming from and why it is doing what it's doing. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to pull out a, a thread there. If, if we can play with this for a little bit, sure. um, <laughs> um, you know, like, a, like some dough here, right. Let's work this, work this a little bit together that, that, you know, I wonder how you feel about this idea that activism, because I think so many, so many of us are drawn to certain causes and want to right wrongs. We all care about justice. We we all care about, um, just, uh, I think when we, when it's brought to our attention, pe- people, and especially kids, uh, mm-hmm. it, it seems to be a natural human tendency, I think, to want to see things, um, work. Um, mm-hmm. and at the same time, I think activism, I, I want to just say, does not replace our spirituality. You know, I think that's mm-hmm. a mistake that, that we can make by, um, not realizing that oftentimes, um, trying to make something happen, make change can leave us in a very closed and rigid state, Yeah, you know, and our body mm-hmm. was, is designed to be both open and closed depending on what, what, what the needs are. And so mm-hmm. it's not, a, you know, I think a lot of times we fall in love with this identity of, standing up to this or promoting that or, um, and not realizing that our posture, I mean, just like in yoga or in sports, mm-hmm. like our posture becomes then, um, the problem, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so it's almost like these neuro- neuroses or obsessions. I don't want to call them addictions, but certainly food is one of the, the most mm-hmm. common, um, compulsions that people can develop that can be quite severe you know, yeah. and often the treatment in treatment, we're trying to help people desensitize, themselves to kind of just eating without worrying about what they're eating, not mm. being so concerned because we're trying to treat the eating yeah. disorder, for example. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, just trusting your gut basically is what we say all the time. But then what that means is like, I'm hungry. I'm going to just eat what's in front of me as opposed to where did this come from and who made it and was it made the way I need it? And all these things that can limit, you know, cause us to restrict. Your thoughts right. on that? Yeah. Oh gosh. That's um, a big question. It's big and it's, it can be a little bit complicated, but I think that, you know, you said it, it, you really have to develop a trust for yourself and, um, and to really give, give that trust to yourself to make um, decisions that, you know, we we can't, we can't be perfect all the time, you know, um, but we have to trust the the process of giving power back to ourselves um, and and being able to to listen to our bodies um, without judgment, um, without expectation, and to really you know accept and 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 love ourselves. And and when we are able to to do that, you know that is incredibly p- powerful within our communities and within the people, the relationships that we have. Let's talk about your favorite recipes. I know the holidays are coming up. Um, if, if you have any things that you can suggest for us and, and just kind of point to, and we'll, we'll be able to put these up on the, on the website. What, what are things that you'd have in mind or recommend for people to make during the holidays? There's plenty of recipes in my book, Sourdough, um, that are seasonal uh, as well as toast and jam and also an heirloom. 
Um, I also have, you know, a Patreon account where I've been posting four recipes a month that are very much inspired by um, seasonal produce, um, sometimes just inspired by chocolate, but <laughs> <laughs> can't go wrong. No? <laughs> you know, chocolate's always in season. <laughs> And I want to encourage people to to visit your Patreon account and 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 note that I you know as a I'm going to call you a food artist. I mean I, I think people um, you know can maybe have the impression that oh you know someone has published a book that they they must this must be easy for them to make ends meet. You know I, I'm I'm kind of imagining you as an artist in that you depend on people valuing what you're bringing and what you're providing. So I want to just offer that to people to check that out and support you. What's one recipe on the Thanksgiving table? Um, what would you want to put on there? What's what's your go-to? Well, I might give you two. <laughs> There's a, a butternut squash and dried cherry bread that um, is it's you know it's incredibly seasonal. You don't have to use the dried cherries. It's a delicious loaf. Um, if you don't, you can also use dried cranberries. I was instead. wondering, yeah, because cranberries are um, around. Yeah. Um, and you know, the, the dried fruit gives like a pop and also a, a nice texture to the bread, but it's, uh, the color of the butternut squash loaf is very Thanksgiving. It's mm. a warm sort of glowing yellowish orange. Um, same with the sweet potato bread, um, and also the beet bread. Um, the beet bread doesn't retain its amazing color once it's baked, but there's a, a really nice feeling of that. Again, those root vegetables mm. that have a little bit of sweetness, which complements so many other flavors of the season, like the bitterness of things like cabbage and Brussels sprouts mm-hmm. and things that we also see on the on the Thanksgiving table. Sounds um, delicious. Most often. Yeah. So I like, uh, I encourage people to, to make those breads that have a little bit of sweetness for, um, the Thanksgiving holiday, um, because I just, I think it complements everything else on the table so well. Mm. Um, but if you, uh, want to skip over the bread and move on to something that's like a, um, a dessert, uh, something that is very easy and um, does not rest upon perfection is something uh, like a galette, where you're making a very rustic uh, sort of pie dough. You can make that in advance and keep it in the fridge or in the freezer and then thaw it, roll it out, and you can fill it with any kind of seasonal fruit um, and a little bit of sweetener. Most people use sugar. Um, and there's Lots of different recipes that I have for that in all of my uh, different books, but there's a fermented pie crust in heirloom um, that's really, uh, I think, very delicious. It's very easy. Um, and you can fill it with anything from, you know, apples to mm. pears. Well, that um, sounds amazing. Yeah. And with something like Thanksgiving, where you have a lot of really heavy foods, you know, I, some people love making cakes and there's lots of upside down cakes, particularly um, sourdough has a few mm. um, that are really delicious. But, um, you know, I appreciate something that's a little bit lighter. You know, you can cut a small wedge of it, maybe serve it with a little bit of ice cream yep, yeah. Or, <laughs> yeah. or whipped cream. Um, and, you know, the, the nature of a galette is that it, you don't want it to be perfect. You want it to mm. be really rustic and kind of free form. Um, and so the, you know, the beauty of that dessert is, is in, um, it's kind of unique outcome. 
Mm. Uh, so it kind of, it takes the pressure off a little bit, you know, especially when you have a lot of different things to get on the table if, if right. you are celebrating um, a large spread this year. <laughs> I mean, some people are like, you know, traditionalists and, and, and in my family, I'm going to just call out my, you know, my dad, like would, you know, wants to have those those certain things that we've always had for Thanksgiving. And, and we're not getting together this year. I think so many people are not getting yeah. together this year. It's really uh, an amazing right. and, and difficult time for a lot of people. I want to notice that. And, and I want to encourage yeah. people to, to try some, something new. I mean, this might be a, a way to break out and break uh, the mold, so to speak. Um, yeah. And your books are fantastic. They're beautifully illustrated. Um, as well as your videos are, I think, really come across really well for people. And, and by the way, the holiday season, you know, for gifts, I think these books make great um, gifts for the holiday season. I think want to encourage people to, to check them out. One question that you mentioned about dessert, have you ever, um, back to dough here, have you, um, what is it like to do fried sourdough? Because that, that's that's one of the most fun things we do in our house. Like I've got some extra pizza dough. We just fry it up the next day, and you know, bu- oh, butter awesome. and confectioner yeah. sugar, cinnamon. Um, you know, like you get at the state fair somewhere. But what about fried sourdough? Have you ever done that? Yeah. So um, it's funny that you asked that because I I have been thinking about apple fritters, mm, yeah. and I had I dreamt all night last night about apple fritters. <laughs> that's great. The, the dreams of a baker. I love it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, you can certainly, um, if you, I always recommend that if you want to, to, to fry dough, to do something that is a a little bit enriched. So, um, something that leans a little bit more toward a brioche, um, like you would make a Mm -hmm. typical donut and, you know, you can use sourdough to leaven any type of bread. It doesn't have to be a crusty hearth loaf. It Mm -hmm. can be, um, a brioche style donut. Uh, or an apple fritter, or you know, any anything else that you can Makes um, everything possibly <laughs> imagine. Yeah, um, the the difference is like with all you know naturally leavened doughs compared to yeasted doughs, um, is that it it takes a little bit longer, and mm-hmm. um, depending on how sweet the dough is, you may have to um, adjust the kind of leaven that you use or the hydration. Um, in some recipes, you know, it's recommended that you kind of condition your starter to feed a little bit on some sort of sugar, whether it's right. um, granulated or honey. Right. Um, but, you know, all that said, it's, it's not very difficult to, um, to make a brioche style dough. Actually, it's, it's the topic of um, my November Patreon nice. we're focusing oh, on. I'm doing a, a butternut squash uh, brioche Ooh, style that delicious. dough that is very versatile. It's very flexible. You can use it to make dinner rolls. You can make it to use mm. um, uh, cinnamon rolls. You can fry it. I have um, to go do it right now. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, and you can, once that dough comes out of the oil, you can roll mm. it in cinnamon sugar. I mean, yeah, there's good stuff. so many different um, things you can do. Uh, right. And it's, uh, it's fun. You know, it's fun to play around and get creative and see what happens. It, it is fun. I'll, I'll admit to uh, seeing what would happen if I, you know, I like to make pancakes from scratch. Um, oh yeah. Put a little bit of sourdough starter in that just for kicks. I mean, it didn't, I didn't let it sit Absolutely. around, you know, I just, baked it, you know, and cooked it. And it was, it was, 
you know, it just gave it a little more body. It was, it was, yeah. like you said, it doesn't have the, you know, you can't really depend on it necessarily unless you're really spending the time with it for its, for its rise. Um, mm-hmm. But it's going to give it a little bit of a flavor. I mean, if you like buttermilk pancakes, I think you're going to like sourdough in there a little bit too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, so great to talk to you, Sarah Owens. You can find um, your books. People can find your books online. Um, You Mm -hmm. want to say anything else about where they can find you? We'll put links to your Patreon account, which is one of the ways that you sustain yourself. Um, Anything else? If you need more information about, you know, how to become a better, better baker, if you are familiar with my recipes and my books, then the Patreon is, is helpful. Um, you know, because that's really kind of, um, it's not a beginner's sort of platform. And it really is more about how to hone your intuition, how to bake with stone ground flowers, um, more whole grains and unrefined sugars. It's fantastic. So, I, I think it's going to appeal. And especially during this time, people do have uh, more people, more time on their hands. Those of us who I guess have the privilege, I will say, to have, to be able to work from home, you know, thank goodness yeah. that's, um, okay for us. And at this point, a lot of people working from home, they want something new to do. They want to take up baking or, or yeah. really invest more in, in it more. I know I'm playing the guitar more, I'm baking more. And so I really recommend your books, Sarah Owens. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for so much for having me. Thanks for listening to The Soul of Life. This is Keith Miller. Oh, and don't forget, please leave a thumbs up or a like for this episode wherever you're listening so that others like you may find the soul of life. I mean, really, it's not every day you get to share the soul of life with someone. Okay, so you can post a comment or question on souloflifeshow.com. I'd love to hear from you. And please subscribe now to get the next episode. I look forward to sharing more of my soul of life with you. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go. Just going to get the dough hook. Just going to get the dough hook on that, on that KitchenAid mixer and let it rip. Let, let, let it rip.